What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about the Babadook. This episode will be dropping on the first Friday of October, which means it's time to kick off our spooky content month for the month of October. And I thought I would start with the film The Babadook because I haven't talked about it yet on this show, but it is one of my favorite horror movies that I've ever seen. I first saw it like maybe six or seven years ago, and I can still visualize almost the entire movie. It really made an impact on me. And I think that it is very interesting in the kind of psychological concepts of grief that it represents. So I'm going to first give a quick little synopsis of the movie in case you haven't seen it or if you're not a horror film and you don't want to go near it. And then I'm going to talk about the way that the film represents traumatic bereavement. And I'm going to be pulling from an article by Ingham that was published in the Psychodynamic Practice Journal that talks about the relationship between the mother and the son in the film and the bereavement that they're going through and how the Babadook kind of symbolizes this process. So I think it'll be a really interesting episode. If you haven't seen the movie, big spoilers ahead, I would recommend it. I really love this film. Um, But if you're not interested in it, I'm going to give you just a quick little synopsis so you can understand what I'm talking about or if you haven't seen it for a while, just to kind of bring back those memories. So the film centers around Amelia Vanek, who is a widowed Australian woman. Everyone's Australian, so if you don't like accents, sorry, they have them. Um, she has a six-year-old son named Sam, and her she is a widow because the night that she was going into labor to deliver her son, her husband was driving her to the hospital, and he was killed in a car accident that night. So her son is six years old, which means six years it's been without the father. The son never has met his father and she has had to raise him by herself without um, her fa- her husband because he, he died that very same night. So the movie picks up as Sam is starting to display some rather unusual behavior. He starts becoming a little bit of an insomniac. He's not sleeping and he looks very scary because he's not sleeping. Like He's pale with the big circles under his eyes. And he's got this obsession with like a monster that's following him and he is building weapons to fight this monster and even like taking those weapons to school and it's getting him into a lot of trouble. So one night after we've joined the family in the film, 
Sam asks his mother to read a pop-up book called Mr. Babadook, and it describes the monster from the title, the Babadook, which is this like tall, really pale-faced, kind of looks like a man creature, but it has really long talons and always wears a top hat and a cloak. That's like the the kind of the look of the Babadook. And the the kind of crux behind the Babadook in the story is that once someone realizes that the Babadook exists, then it torments them until they either die because of the fear or they take their lives into their own hands. Amelia, the mother, is understandably disturbed by this story, and she doesn't understand how her son came to get the book. It just sort of appeared while her son is now convinced that the Babadook is real and is the monster that he's been trying to fight. After reading this book, then the spooky stuff starts happening, doors opening and shutting on their own, strange sounds in the house, and Amelia starts to find things like glass shards in her food. She thinks that it's her son that doing these kind of weird things, but her son continues to say it's the Babadook, and so because he's so obsessed with this monster, she takes the book and rips it up and throws it away. The next day after she rips up the book, she finds it again on the front doorstep, and it has new words in it, and it says that the more that she tries to deny that the Babadook exists, the stronger that it'll become. And I note this because this is going to come up in the later part of this episode. Um, And the new book, the repaired book, has uh, images of her killing their dog, Sam, and herself in the book. Um, Then some more things happen. Her son continues to be erratic, and he hurts another... He hurts his uh, cousin, and the... Aunt Amelia's sister is basically like, I I don't want your son around anymore. He doesn't make me comfortable. So things are not going well for the family. Eventually, it um she she eventually does see the Babadook. It, it comes into her room and she panics. She turns on all the lights and she like won't let Sam out of her sight. And this kind of kicks off her mental decline where she becomes very isolated. She becomes very impatient with her son, is constantly demanding that he obeys her and she's seeing the Babadook more and more frequently and she even tries to go to the police to report what is happening um, but she sees what looks like the Babadook's cloak at the police station so she thinks that kind of like everybody is working with the monster against her. The climax of the film is that she sees an apparition of her husband, her deceased husband, who is saying, like, I'll come back to life if you turn your son over to the Babadook. And she realizes the Babadook is, like, creating this hallucination, and she starts to flee, but the Babadook possesses her. And she does kill the family dog and then tries to kill her son, who, in a marvelous feat of strength for a six-year-old boy, ties her up, knocks her out, and basically helps her to purge the Babadook from her system, by like loving on her like he he continues to tell her like i love you and he touches her face and then she like throws up the babadook (laughs) it's like this gross black stuff and like that's apparently the babadook that was in her possessing her um but then he tells her we can never get rid of the babadook and he like gets snatched up by it but they ultimately defeat it and lock the babadook in the basement and the last scene of the movie is they are in the backyard like having a barbecue and they're picking worms to put in a bowl and amelia takes the bowl of worms to the basement puts it on the floor and we see that the babadook is living in the basement 
and she's feeding it the worms and they've like basically tamed it and are living with it in their house um, without its impact on them and, and she and Sam are happy again. That little scene at the end is one of the reasons why I love the Babadook so much because on one hand, it's a horror movie that does have a happy ending. I mean, their dog does not make it, which is very sad, but the two main characters survive and get to kind of have their life go back to normal at the end of it. And it's such an interesting way to deal with a monster in a horror movie. Often the end of the horror movie is either the monster wins because it kills everyone or the heroes win by killing the monster. But never do we, not never, but it's not usual to see that the monster is tamed at the end of the movie and the characters learn to live alongside it in kind of like a tentative, neutral piece. I think it does show that Amelia and Sam are quite powerful characters that even though they didn't kill the Babadook, because apparently it's not possible to kill him, they have been able to tame him and live with him and live their life in spite of his presence. And I think that takes an incredible amount of strength to live in a home with something like scary in the basement, but still be able to like go on with their lives and develop naturally. And I think that this ending of the Babadook is also what makes it such a wonderful parallel to dealing with grief, particularly traumatic grief. And so that's what I'm going to jump off of to talk about next is this idea of traumatic grief or traumatic bereavement. And again, the citation for this is um, Ingham's 2015 article or that where they reviewed the Babadook, but I, I add some of my own opinion to it as well. So first things first, just a definition of traumatic grief is grief that follows a sudden or unexpected loss, often after a violent incident. Traumatic grief is more likely to happen after events such as like someone being murdered, someone dying by suicide, or someone dying in an unexpected accident, much like how the husband dies at the beginning of the film in a car accident while his wife is in labor. Traumatic grief is more likely to lead to conditions like complicated grief or prolonged grief disorder, which are syndromes where people experience intense phases of grief for much longer than would be anticipated. This is actually a new disorder that was added to the DSM-5 text revised version, which talks about prolonged grief disorder, which is essentially where someone experiences that first stage of grief, the like very intense grief of first finding out that someone has died for over 12 months. That's kind of the criteria that we've put on prolonged grief disorder. However, the idea of complicated grief has long been in the language in the field, and I know many people in the field work with the idea of complicated grief, which is where there are mitigating factors to the situation that led to the death that may make it harder for the survivors to process the loss of their loved one. The In traumatic grief, the trauma of the event blocks the ability of the person to process the loss, which can lead to the development of disorders like prolonged grief disorder or even something like PTSD. So if you think about someone who has experienced a non-traumatic loss, like maybe someone, uh, for example, if someone had an elderly parent who had a chronic illness or terminal illness, and there was an understanding that this person is going to die in a certain amount of time, it doesn't mean that the grief is not still real or tangible or painful, but the uh, ability to understand that an end is coming allows the person who will survive the loss to start processing that grief before it happens. And after the person dies, 
there aren't these other mitigating things that make it more likely to avoid thinking about the death. This is what's difficult about traumatic grief is the trauma of the situation tends to lead us into avoidance of thinking about the loss or thinking about the person who has died. Avoidance is a very powerful factor in the development of disorders like PTSD. If we avoid thinking about what has happened, it makes the thing that happened scarier. The trauma becomes much more powerful and it's harder for our brains to remember that we're in the present moment and we're not in the past when avoidance plays a big role. And avoidance can look, can be both an internal and external process. So internal avoidance is things like avoiding thoughts about the person that you've lost or the situation that led to their death, um, avoiding the feelings, like trying to be emotionally numb or not tapping into what am I feeling right now versus, or even things like not even touching memories related to the person that you lost. So that's all internal. External avoidance can look like avoiding situations that remind you of the person or the trauma. It can be avoiding people. So like maybe if you lost a parent, avoiding your other parent or avoiding other family members because you know we're going to have to talk about the person that we lost if we're all together or someone's going to want to bring them up. Um, And it can also be avoiding um, any activity or basically anything outside of the self that reminds one of the trauma or the loss. So in traumatic bereavement, there's this avoidance of the trauma that then prevents the processing of the grief. And so this leads to the development of things like PTSD or other trauma or stressor-related disorders. Now, I want to be clear here, and I I do want to go into... um, maybe more episodes in the future about things like the development of PTSD. But I want to be clear that avoidance is not something that you need to be blamed for, right? The person experiencing traumatic grief who may be engaging in that avoidance, it's not it's not anyone's fault that that's happening. And in fact, the avoidance can sometimes be a very natural or survival response because I need to get through my day and if every thought that I'm having about the person that I've lost is activating these trauma responses, then in order to survive my day, I'm going to have to avoid them. So avoidance can be a way that we try to get through things and in the short term, avoidance tends to be helpful. It gets us through the day, it gets us around these trauma responses and it helps us kind of quote unquote hold it together for the time being. The downside to avoidance as a coping mechanism is that in the long term, the longer we avoid something, the more intense it becomes. And that's usually then when people end up in a category like PTSD, where the avoidance has become so strong that the body and the brain cannot separate trauma from the present. And we're getting a lot of symptoms that are intruding upon the present day that manifested at the time of the trauma. And I, you know, I won't go into it too much more in this episode, but I do just want to say that the avoidance is not, although it, it can be like a conscious decision that someone is making, like, I just can't think about this right now, or I can't be around this person right now. It is very often from a perspective of, I need to survive, I need to get through the day, um, or, I need to get through my life, and so I, I can't touch on this because of the pain that it will come up. The just downside is it it does then exacerbate the problem. And the thing that we were avoiding then becomes even more intense to us um, and oftentimes then hits a point where the avoidance isn't even working anymore. So we need something to replace that. 
Symptoms or signs of traumatic grief include things like nightmares, sleep disturbances, avoidance, flashbacks, emotional numbness, fear, and anxiety. And in the Babadook, we see both the mother and the son experiencing these things. The son has very intense sleep disturbances, and he does go through his life with a lot of fear and anxiety about these monsters that are coming from him, which then leads him to do something like create weapons. Um, that itself could also, we could also conceptualize that as a type of hypervigilance, which develops in trauma-related disorders, where someone is constantly scanning their environment, looking for ways for how do I stay safe? How do I keep myself safe? How do I leave this environment if it's dangerous? Um, I've had experiences where clients will say things like, I think about all the ways that I could take someone out. I think about all the ways that I could escape. I think about you know, how unprotected am I if I stay in this part of the room versus if I go into the corner. The the little boy Sam in the movie is experiencing those types of things where he's trying to protect himself and his mother at all times because it feels like a constant onslaught of threat from these potential monsters, which kind of unfortunately does become true because the Babadook does haunt them throughout the movie. The mother also experiences the, the nightmares. Um, she does have a lot of anxiety. She also does present as quite emotionally numb and the scenes in the beginning of the movie where it, it kind of is pointing toward maybe it's just her son is behaviorally acting out. She is very kind of like removed from things. She seems very numb, but then she will have these like flashes of rage or anger. Um, and as the movie goes on, those become more and more frequent as she kind of is like losing grip on her emotional regulation. So I think the movie gives us enough signs that they are going through traumatic grief. And because it's been six years since the death of her husband, and she's still experiencing this intensity uh, or this prolonged level of gr the grief process, then we would be able to say like, okay, this is, this is developing into something like complicated grief because it has been... I know six years is really not that long in terms of grieving, but because the intensity is still so high, from a clinical perspective, we would say, okay, there's something getting in the way of her processing this grief and being able to, uh, you know, like incorporate it into her life in a way, not just getting over it, but processing it to a point where she can live alongside her grief rather than it being this like all-consuming force. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the way that the movie processes this traumatic grief. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And we're back. So the first thing that I noted from this article was that they talked about that the birth and death share, the birth of the son and the death share the same anniversary. The father is killed while driving the mother to the hospital um, on the very day that Sam is born. And I think that this contributes to the fact that this death is so traumatic because every time that her son has a birthday, it will automatically remind her of the loss that she's had. And in a way, it will remind Sam as well. Um, but for him being so young, he doesn't necessarily have, he doesn't have any memories of his father and, you know, has never consciously known his father. But for Amelia, this makes Sam's birthdays a potential triggering event because it can remind her of 
the loss that she suffered and how she not only suffered this like very abrupt loss of her husband, but at a time when she was in a vulnerable state, right? Being in active labor and not having her partner with her and trying to like process grief at the same time, give birth to a healthy baby. That's a lot. That's a very complicated situation. And the more complicating factors that we have, the more likely we are to experience complicated or traumatic grief. The author also goes on to point out that the experiences in the film of the haunting of the Babadook are essentially a type of disassociation from the grief itself. The grief cannot be explained. There, There's no language that the mother and the son have within their relationship to talk about the grief. So it begins, per, it begins to become projected into the sounds of the haunting, the supernatural events of the Babadook. The grief is so traumatic to them that it can only be experienced through an external subject, the Babadook. So essentially, we can look at the Babadook as representing the traumatic grief that Amelia and Sam have over the loss of their father, their father-husband, uh, and not only that, but the the grief around how, what damage it has done to the family dynamic. Because Amelia and Sam's relationship is very much bogged down by this grief and Amelia is not able to be a present mother for him because of her grief and Sam is not able to feel cared for in his family relationships so he becomes the protector by like making the weapons and and being like I'm gonna take care of this the monsters that are coming after us um so the Babadook solely represents their their grief. And I, I like that the author of the article brought up this point because disassociation is a very, very common symptom or sign of trauma in general and, and you know, therefore traumatic grief. Disassociation is a way for the brain to give us a timeout to kind of check out of what is going on and remove ourselves from the intensity of the situation. The Babadook is the representation of all of these twisted up and complicated and unprocessed feelings that Amelia has toward her son. And we we see that in the book, The Babadook. So first, she goes to destroy the book because she cannot tolerate this representation of her grief. She has disassociated from it so much that she doesn't want any piece of it. She doesn't want to acknowledge its presence in her life. And so it shows up unannounced. This this would be like the grief is seeping out of her so much that it she can no longer ignore it and it shows up as a book. And so first she tries to destroy it. She tries to rip it up, which understandable. A lot of us, I think many, <laughs> most, even all of us do not want to deal with these like very intense um, emotions. And so the, the urge to destroy them is very understandable. And this would... I think also can represent a form of disassociation of, I don't even want to look at this thing. I just want to destroy it and try to get rid of it. The thing about grief, aka the Babadook, is that you can't get rid of it. It is something that it remains with you no matter how hard you try to disassociate from it. So then the book comes back and it comes back in a worse way because now the book includes images of her doing harm to her dog, her son, and herself. And I think that this is can be seen as a representation of how the more we try to deny or disassociate from the reality of our experiences, the more they come back as stranger and scarier than they were or would be if we were able to confront them head on. Amelia's grief, although she has been working incredibly hard to disassociate from it and remove it from herself and not acknowledge 
the impact that it has on her and her son, it is there and it cannot be just dismissed so easily. And after six years of being dismissed, the grief is almost like taken on a life of its own. It has become the Babadook and it demands to be perceived. It demands to be interacted with. And I think that's why the book constantly makes these threats that if once you've understood the Babadook exists, it will not leave you alone. And so Amelia's choice of succumb to the Babadook or try to protect her family from it in some way, I think it's very similar to the the choice that, you know, we as people have to make when dealing with things like grief. Do we succumb to the grief and succumb to the consequences of avoidance of, you know, the 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 trauma and the way the maladaptive ways that we cope with things like turning to substances or turning to risky behaviors or isolating ourselves do we succumb to those things or do we choose to face the grief in all of its pain and all of its terror and find some way to protect ourselves and our family from it by confronting it and uh, confronting the trauma confronting the grief instead of just avoiding it and it's not an easy choice i i hope that that is clear as I talk about this. This is not something that is just, you know, snap of the finger, we have figured it out. And of course, the Babadook is also a supernatural creature. So it has, it has its own, uh, you know, extra things to deal with. But I do think it is a, a an interesting symbol of this process wherein through we can feel that the trauma and the grief that we are experiencing is so out of our control because an element of it is that, you know, the thing that happened to us was out of our control. But I think a way to start to feel some of that autonomy and take back some of that control is to think through and have support in these processes of, so what do I do next? How do I, how do I live my life moving forward in a way where I can take back some of that control and, and decide if am I going to continue to avoid this thing and let it build in my life? Or am I going to cease some of the avoidance and confront parts of this so that I can live my life in a in a healthy way that's good for me or my family. And the Babadook is a very extreme representation of that, but that's where we end up at the end, right? We end up with Amelia taming, well, Amelia and Sam taming the Babadook and living alongside it rather than avoiding it. Um, the Babadook is not front and center in their lives at the end of the film, right? It does still, it lives in the basement. It is not something that is a, a piece of them front and center, but it is something that they still have to consider every day because they're feeding it. <laughs> and I do think that that's just such a wonderful example of how something that is in, so intense, like like traumatic grief, can be a part of our lives moving forward. It does not have to be in the front living room, a, a part of every conversation and you know showing itself off every second of every day. It can be in the basement. But we don't want it to be in the basement out of a place of avoidance where we never go to the basement. We want to be able to go into the basement and say, enough. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want you screaming down here anymore. I'm sick of hearing you. Here's your bowl of worms. <laughs> let, let us move on with our lives. Um, and so I think that that is what I really liked about the end of this movie is, is this, this kind of nebulous dark force that the Babadook represents can be tamed in a way, can be lived alongside of rather than just constantly feared and avoided. 
Ingham also argues that the Babadook represents mortality because there is a possibility of death after inviting him in because the book says that he will basically stay with you until you die. And so the family of Amelia and Sam must work through their encounter with mortality that they have with the father and both thinking about their own mortality. Uh, I, I think that, yes, the Babadook can represent some of this death, but I do like the idea that he represents more along the lines of the of the grief. Um, and I think alongside with the grief can come the sphere of mortality. Um, often the kind of grief response can be, I never want to think about death again because look what it's done to me. And I think that's where Amelia falls. She falls in this camp of death is the worst thing in the world because it took my husband from me and has, you know, ruined my my family that I was planning for. Whereas I think Sam takes the route of death is something that needs to be obsessively studied and understood so that it can't surprise me like the way it surprised my mom and my dad. And, you know, there are pros and cons <laughs> to both both approaches. Um, but I think the the thing that is most clear from the film is that Amelia and Sam were on opposite ends of the way that they understood this trauma and this idea of death. And the Babadook almost in a way triangulated himself into the relationship. They had to like work together to come to a place of understanding about death, grief, loss, fear, trauma. Um, and by them working together, they were able to tame it versus when one was just trying to be the sole protector. It didn't work. It took them working together to fully tame the Babadook. Ingham is also writing from a psychodynamic perspective. So they talk about this paranoid schizoid and depressive position. So I figured I could use this as like a brief little time to mention those topics. These ideas come from a psychodynamic therapist or theorist, um, Melanie Klein, who worked a lot around the idea of like how experiences in childhood, like infant experiences in childhood and the way that those things get processed then impact us moving into adulthood. And so two of her main positions were the paranoid schizoid position and the depressive position. The paranoid schizoid position is basically anxiety. (laughs) It is a cluster of like anxieties and defense mechanisms that can, that are the most present in early infancy and if not addressed can continue through childhood and adulthood. And at the core of the schizoid paranoid position is the um, experience of, of splitting, which is splitting between the good and the bad. And in infancy, she has a lot where she talks about the good mother versus the bad mother. But as we move into um, adulthood, this can stick with us where we continue to split between what is good and what is bad. We can split ourselves, so think that there's like a bad part of ourselves and a good part of ourselves. Um, we can split between people, so thinking that somebody is all good or all bad. Um, and the more that we split, the more fragmentation that occurs, the more that the self and the ego become fragile and prone to like disintegration. The depressive position, in short, is about integrating these the splitting that happens in the paranoid schizoid position. So the depressive position is where one is able to say this, 
you know, revered, loved object like my mother is both good and bad in the same person rather than splitting and saying when my mother does something that I like, she is good mother. And when she does something that is bad or I don't like, she is bad mother. And that those are like two separate people. The depressive position is where one could say, sometimes my mother does things I don't like and sometimes my mother does things that I do like. And overall, she is still my mother, one person. And I say mother because that's what Melanie Klein uses. Our old psychodynamic stuff is all about the mother. But the idea is that this would be applied to any um, like relationship, particularly important relationships like partners, children, parents, etc. In The Babadook, Amelia is in the paranoid schizoid position for much of the movie and she is she has split or she's actually cut out any memory of her husband from her life and her husband has in one essence remained a non-entity because she like doesn't talk about him and doesn't bring his presence into their home in any way and has also remained this like idealized version of him like her husband is like this this perfect person who was taken away from her um and so she remains in this this paranoid schizoid position because she cannot integrate the reality of what has happened with her husband and even with her son because her son was born on the day that her husband died. So there's this splitting between those of her husband is all good and her son is all bad because he took away her husband in a sense. Um, And so these kind of like anxieties and defenses that come up from that position leads to Amelia being the kind of like harried woman and like having a difficult time that she has even in the very beginning of the film. And so she must move toward the depressive position to allow to mourn for her husband. So her encounter with the Babadook is her way of moving into that depressive position. And we see that at the end. At the end, she is able to, she's even able to see the good in the Babadook, right? She's able to take care of the Babadook and see it as an entity that like deserves to be fed and, and sheltered. Um, and so same with her ability to process her grief. She can remember her husband as the totality of who he is. And she can look at her son as the totality of who he is without solely blaming him for the loss of her husband. So in short, the Babadook teaches us that the more we try to divorce from or disown our grief, the more powerful and destructive that it can become. The Babadook is not banished or removed, just like grief can never be fully banished or removed from our lives, but it is tamed and lived alongside. Um, The way that Amelia and Sam keep their grief close to them, right? The Babadook is in the, their home in the in the basement. They keep it close, but again, they don't make it the focus of their relationship or they they are able to like have it near them and acknowledge that it exists um, without it remaining this like very scary thing anymore. So that's, I, I loved reading this article and I, again, I love the Babadook. So I think that it like makes sense how these things fit together. And the Babadook can serve as a very powerful metaphor for why we might want to confront our grief when it is a baby Babadook before it becomes a full-grown, scary adult Babadook. (laughs) And lastly, before I wrap the episode up, I just want to end on a few notes with pointers that can help with processing traumatic grief. These all come from Psych Central, which is sourced on my website. And again, this is not a replacement for mental health treatment, but can be some guidelines to 
push you in the direction that you need to go to get support from a mental health professional while processing traumatic grief. So one thing to keep in mind is that no matter if it's traumatic grief or a trauma that didn't end in in death, um, we want to build routine and structure into our lives. This is important for the body and the brain to understand that we are safe in the current moment and no longer in the traumatic event. So having something stable to do every day, having a routine to hold on to or some sort of structure in the day can help remind the brain we are here in the now and we are not in the past. This is very common in trauma that the brain gets tricked into thinking we're back in the trauma because the body is having trauma responses that are similar to what was happening in the moment of the trauma. So anything that we can do to anchor the brain and the body to the present moment can help begin to process and understand that we're no longer in that traumatic event. An important thing to do when processing traumatic grief is also to normalize the feelings. Grief is different for everyone. We have these models of the grief process, but we know that no one goes through them in a linear fashion and no two people go through them in the same way. Experiencing a traumatic loss can be even more difficult and you may feel yourself having experiences that the people around you who have grieved in other ways are not having. And so acknowledging those difficult feelings and normalizing that it's okay that you're having them can be very important. Um, Like I said up at the top, avoidance can be something that's very, very useful for the trauma to develop into a, a more intense thing. And so we want to avoid avoiding. You might want to give yourself opportunities to think about the grief um, or think about the loss without giving into that pull to avoid. Now, I do want to make clear, I don't think this means that like when you're, you know, sitting in a meeting, you need to be traumatizing yourself by thinking about your loss, but having opportunities where the pull to avoid is strong and saying, you know, I don't want to do that right now. I, I do want to remember this person or I do want to process what has happened to me and not just continue this avoidance cycle. So avoid avoiding, which I know we're, I'm saying don't avoid, but avoid the avoid. Um, finding ways to express yourself. So talking with other people in your life, journaling, being able to write down those difficult feelings, joining a support group. There, there are support groups for various types of losses. So if you've experienced a traumatic loss that you feel like you're the only one who's gone through it, the chances are of you finding a support group for that type of loss are pretty high. And that's another way to normalize those feelings of knowing, oh, people, other people have gone through this. This is how they've either made it through or how they're continuing their journey. Like, you know, what do I want to learn from those? And of course, going to therapy, going to a trauma-informed therapist who can help you remove those barriers to processing that grief. And it's important, I think, to go to a trauma-informed therapist because they're not going to tell you just get over it, just grieve and move on. But they're going to help they're going to help you learn skills to knock down those barriers that make it more difficult to process the grief. And they maybe even be able to help you navigate those complicated conversations of how do I grieve someone who maybe died in a way related to the complicated relationship that we had? You know, maybe they died by suicide um, and you you have complicated feelings about that. And that's very common in in people who survived someone who died by suicide of am I angry at this person because they did this? Am I sad for them? Am I angry at the world for making them feel this way for the lack of resources they had? You know, am I disappointed that I had these feelings? All of those like complicated things that can make 
the grief more difficult because you don't know where you stand with the, the person you've lost, uh, uh, that is a, something that a therapist can help you with and provide that safe space to express those things that you can't just tell your family or friends, right? There are, there are probably people in your life that couldn't handle that type of conversation, but a therapist can handle that conversation and give you the space to have it. But I would say they need to be a trauma-informed therapist, especially if you have traumatic grief. Uh, And I'm going to list these resources in the show notes, but there are some resources that are specifically for complicated grief. These include things like the Trauma Survivors Network, which can be for people who, if you've experienced a trauma where nobody died or you are the survivor of something where other people died or you witnessed or learned about someone in your life dying from a traumatic event, the Trauma Survivors Network has some resources there. The Center for Complicated Grief, um, they have a website where you can find therapists that specialize in working with complicated grief as well as other resources. And then an organization called Hope for the Bereaved, which is a, I believe it's like a peer organization and they do a lot of, um, they have a lot of resources in the literature for coping with grief, regardless of the type of grief, but just in general coping with grief. So I'll link to those organizations in the show notes of this episode so you can check them out if you think that's something that you need. And as always, there are resources on my website if you are looking for other types of mental health service. um, And if you are in crisis and need something right away, there's the 988. um, And there's links to other ones in my episode uh, notes as well. So I know I ended this on a not-so-light mood, but it is the Babadook. He's, he's not a very light man, um, but I, I, I hope that this was helpful to illustrate these ideas of traumatic bereavement. I will have the article that I cited from sourced as well if you want to be able to read it. It's available online. Um, it's a short read, so <laughs> it's not too big of a burden. But as always, I just want to say thank you for listening all the way through, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.